Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Insurance Uncovered, Damick's podcast and your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. This week's episode is sponsored by New England Asset Management. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering automated vehicles, how the safety and regulation of AVs is being addressed at the Department of Transportation, plus social inflation. Jen Rees' Glenn Frankel shares how insurers can address the key drivers behind this troubling trend. This week on Capitol Hill, the U.S. Department of Transportation addressed several questions about the development of automated vehicles and its plans to foster their advancement. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg testified in front of the Senate Commerce Committee and responded to multiple questions about the future of AVs, including how the DOT plans to evaluate safety exemptions for this emerging technology. I'll uh, share a couple examples that are within the realm of our existing authorities, even pending congressional action to, to pave the way for further work on, on AVs. One is uh, that NHTSA has the authority under Section 555 to allow the deployment of vehicles that would be ex- exempt from safety standards uh, as long as an operator can show that it would lead to an equivalent level of safety. There's a cap on that, uh, 2,500 vehicles per year for two years. Uh, and uh, and they can be extended to uh, one exemption so far has been granted to a company called Neuro. Uh, we do have additional petitions for exemption and are moving to uh, try to uh, um, address those promptly. The other thing I would mention is there's uh, uh, the exemption called Box 7. That's for imported vehicles. And a number of exemptions have been uh, granted to allow for the deployment of AVs. That's on uh, very restricted and specific routes, uh, but another way to make sure that some of these innovations are playing out on U.S. soil. Secretary Buttigieg also addressed how the DOT plans to modernize federal motor vehicle safety standards to account for AVs, noting the ongoing work to update the language of regulations to make sure we keep pace with AV innovations. NAMIC has been a leading voice on AV safety and maintaining the state regulation of liability and insurance. The association is also asking members of Congress to support the Repair Act, which would ensure consumers can get access to the diagnostic data needed to repair their vehicles. The U.S. House will host a hearing next week to examine the S&P proposal changing its methodology to analyze insurers' risk-based capital adequacy. Dozens of members of the House Financial Services Committee have been critical of S&P's proposal, which seeks to downgrade securities evaluated by national recognized rating organizations other than S&P, Moody's, and Fitch Ratings. Since the proposal was released, NAMIC has spent time educating members of Congress that the S&P proposal would actually harm insurers, and given S&P's large market share, the proposal would have a chilling effect on competition among all rating organizations. If you've watched television recently, you've no doubt seen at least one or perhaps many commercials from accident lawyers promising big dollar settlements against insurance companies. The number of such commercials has increased dramatically over the past several years as a phenomenon known as social inflation has taken root in our legal system. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldrich sits down with Jen Rees' Glenn Frankel to discuss how insurers can address the key drivers behind this troubling trend. 
On today's Unscripted, I'm joined by Glenn Frankel from Genry to talk about social inflation, a topic that has had a profound impact on the property casualty industry. It's been a topic of study, uh, debate, uh, consternation, whatever word you want to use there in several recent years. And we also expect this phenomenon to kind of increase uh, over the foreseeable future. Glenn's going to to join us today and kind of talk through that phenomenon. Uh, and so thanks for joining us today, Glenn, and welcome to the podcast. I heard you speak on this topic uh, at a, actually at a Jinri forum uh, earlier in the year this year. thought you had some very interesting perspective on it and thought it'd be a good topic for the listeners today. It's also one of the reasons Namic and Jinri have partnered on a series of kind of research papers on this topic. Uh, where we've examined different aspects of social inflation. So uh, it's been a good partnership and 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 something that I know the members have benefited from. So so why don't we kind of get right into it here today? Uh, you know, clearly understanding what social inflation is uh, is kind of a good starting point. So why don't we start there? Great. Yeah, thanks, Neil. And thanks for having me, too. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, so social inflation, I actually, I don't love the name. I just don't think yeah. it's that descriptive. Um, but uh, a hard definition of social inflation is it is the increase in insurers' claim costs over and above general economic inflation. So it's a situation where the claim world is basically outpacing uh, what's going on in, from an inflation perspective. And what we've really got is a civil tort system that's gotten out of whack, right? The The primary purpose of the tort system is to compensate injured individuals, hold parties at fault accountable, and deter misconduct. Um, but it's kind of lost its way and gotten out of control. And social inflation is the moniker that kind of captures all of that. Yeah, correct. I know that was one of the things I remember you talking about when I heard you speak earlier, not in love with the the, the naming of this phenomenon, uh, as it were. I and mean, it's something we might, we might talk about uh, as we go here. So. I mean, obviously, driving claims costs is always an interest of insurers. But talk about how this is particularly problematic, as opposed to you know any other sort of you know we have we have an environment at the moment where costs for claims are going up for normal inflationary reasons of goods, the you know the price of repairing automobiles and all of those kinds of things are certainly at play. But what is particularly problematic about this particular phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, to me, is it's just it's it's macro effect, right? There is a um, part of what we do in the claim world and as an insurance industry is we are reliant on the civil tort litigation system, and if that's not functioning well and it's out of whack, that's going to affect all of us in ways that, frankly, I just don't think can be priced for. So what's going on in the auto and trucking world right now? It's just at the end of the day, it's not sustainable. So. Um, if it continues along that path, there's going to be ramifications, frankly, that just aren't good for society at large. Um, I think about J&J as a large pharmaceutical company, which has been under attack in a mass tort context for um, top litigation and other pharmaceutical related exposures. And if there are errors, mistakes in products, those should be compensated. But if they're done at such unrealistic, unsustainable numbers, we can't have a society where J&J goes out of business, right? I think we've all just learned in the pandemic that we we are reliant on our pharmaceutical companies right. in, in part to keep <clears throat> us safe. So it's just, it's all got to work together. And right now, the, the system is just off. Yeah, do you, do you see it? In, I know I, I, from hearing a lot of 
discussion around the topic. I know commercial auto is one, particularly the trucking industry is one. It's certainly been the source of a lot of the stories that you hear. I know there's, there's a billion-dollar verdict in North Dakota um, that was the result of a commercial trucking accident. It's always a terrible circumstance, right, that, that occurs. People were killed. They lost their lives. And, you know, that's a bad situation without, goes without saying, of course. A billion dollars may be a bit excessive. Uh, I know that there are also lots of other examples of that. So are there particular areas of of concern within the insurance context? I know you mentioned the J&J example. Are there other sort of areas that you focus in on? Yeah, I think right now um, the, the auto world in general and particularly trucking is, is kind of under siege. And, you know, and I think about that from the broader ramifications too. I believe 80% of all consumer goods are delivered by commercial trucking operations, right? Again, it's right. a it's an industry that as a society, and we're learning now with supply chain issues that we haven't seen before, how reliant we are for just our everyday needs and goods. Um, and what's going on right now in that area is not sustainable. And again, individual accidents, don't get me wrong, they're bad if people are doing wrong things, not following rules uh, on the road for too long, those should be yeah. addressed. Right. But when you award a billion dollars to a single plaintiff, that's not sustainable for the next hundred plaintiffs. And that's the problem. And when you start doing the math on what a billion dollars really means and, you know, amortize that over 20, it's it's crazy. And by the way, it's not collectible typically, right? right? right. Because that is attained by plaintiff's counsel. And I'm, I'm not disparaging all plaintiff's counsel, but that's right. about uh, ego, headlines, and getting the next set of, client, of, of clients. It's not really about the individual recovery for that individual. Right, for, for, for certain. And, and that's a whole other piece to this, is, <laughs> is how it gets eventually sorted out. I know a lot, in many cases, uh, some of these verdicts end up getting diminished uh, over time, but even diminishing a billion-dollar verdict isn't going to become a $100,000 verdict. Correct. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the issue, too, right? So um, it, it's a, it creates multiple sets of challenges. So talk about what are some of the key kind of drivers to this? What are we, we you know, what are we seeing as far part of the explanation behind this? Yeah, so I, th I think there are a number of drivers that are um, that are kind of leading to this round of social inflation, which, by the way, is not a new phenomenon. Social inflation came about early in the asbestos and environmental wars. It reared its head again uh, in medical malpractice uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. It, it, it exists internationally, so it's not unique to now or just the United States. But for this round of it, I think there's a number of things that are really driving it. One is, um, and I think we absolutely have to, you got to give credit where it's due, is, is plaintiff's counsel. Um, they're increasingly more sophisticated, creative, and effective than they have before. So they're, they're talented, and they're doing their jobs well. Um, but in terms of what else is driving it, I think the third-party litigation uh, financing and funding phenomenon that has arisen is a big driver. And for those of you that may not be aware, that is where an unrelated third party funds the case in return for share of the proceeds if, if successful. So it's, it's a litigation investment vehicle. Um, it's a billion-dollar industry. It's been highly profitable with huge returns. Again, not, not unique to the U.S. It's international as well. But in the U.S. to date, it's unregulated and generally doesn't have to be disclosed in litigation. And that's a problem because you don't know who you're dealing with on the other side, right? So, and that 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 comes out in a few ways. One, it, it is an, an infusion of capital 
to plaintiff's counsel so they could hire good experts and try their case as well. But with that infusion of capital comes changes in the decision-making of the calculus. So you have an aggregator, basically, of litigation that don't care about individual results. And they don't care if they lose 9 of 10 as long as 10's a home run. And that just fundamentally changes the settlement calculus. And it's changing the game and leading to it's creating this vicious circle of more and more outsized uh, verdicts. Um, yeah. Just last week, in fact, if folks aren't aware, um, the Delaware Fed Federal Court, the chief judge issued a standing order requiring disclosure of financing by non-parties uh, in any litigation on either side. And that's not to a single case. That's all cases venued in the Delaware Federal Court. So that's a positive development and hopefully a blueprint that can be used by additional uh, jurisdictions in the future. Yeah, we, we've got a situation at the moment here where we've been involved in trying to get that that transparency around litigation lending for some time with varying degrees of success in different states. I didn't know about the Delaware development. That's a good one. Uh, <clears throat> we've got a similar phenomenon going on at the moment in Illinois where they've got a bill uh, headed to the governor's desk that is just the opposite of that, actually. It, pre it prevents disclosure um, explicitly of, of, of third-party financing, which is sort of amazing to me that that would be anybody would think that that's a valuable piece of public policy but um that one is headed to the governor's desk in illinois we're hoping to get the governor to veto it we'll see how that goes but it's certainly it's something we've worked on here for a number of years and the litigation lending they originally you know it was sort of the predatory lending kind of piece it was you know the non-recourse loan portion of this to individuals that you know where you had you ran into interest rate caps and those kinds of things but but this this phenomenon of investment in litigation for return is different altogether in terms of its scale of a problem here so uh, that's an interesting uh, part of this what about i've heard also a lot about uh, and to, to me, I find this to be just sort of generally interesting. The makeup of juries themselves, I've heard a lot of thought around, um, you know, we, we, I know we blame a lot of things in this country about the millennials and Gen Z, um, sometimes with good cause. But, um, you know, this notion that, that juries make up changes, we see a difference in how uh, the outcome of these cases are, are meted out. Yeah, thanks. And that's actually a really good segue because I, I want to get back to the additional reasons for what's driving uh -huh. uh, social inflation. Um, one is definitely changing, uh, hardening uh, juror, demogra uh, juror dem demographics um, and just a hardening of attitudes overall. So the juries are moving towards younger generations. Those younger gen generations, one, are impacted by social media. And that's really, that's its own reason. Plaintiff's counsel has very effectively utilized both social media and advertising. Uh, plaintiff's counsel advertising is actually up about 60% since 2008. So it's just more and more. And these younger jurors are more susceptible to that, um, partly because of social media. But the younger jurors, and I'm sure uh, people like myself who have, if you have a child anywhere in the, say, 15 to 30 year uh, age range, they feel way more empowered to make and affect change than I ever did in my whole life. And that has an effect on a juror. And then you combine that with uh, recent polls show that uh, potential jurors working into the courtroom for jury selection have the highest mistrust of corporations all time. It's actually at about 50 percent. 
So they're walking into the courtroom with this perspective and a belief in there should be a redistribution of corporate profits and they're younger and they're empowered to make change and COVID and the impact of inflation now is only exacerbating these conditions. So all that leads to very, very difficult juror demographics. And then um, just the last reason, which is really a, a biggie, Neil, is the reptile theory. Um, for those that aren't aware, the reptile theory is an attempt to incite uh, the survival instinct in jurors to push them and influence them to protect both themselves and society and try to compel a jury on a base level to render an outsized verdict to send a broader message. And that's really the key in it, is the case morphs into something different than the individual facts and circumstances. Kind of what we were talking about earlier, the, the civil trial system is supposed to, that's what it's supposed to be targeted at. Now it's changing. So the easy example is a trucking case that all of a sudden becomes not about compensating the injured party, but rather getting the jury to act to a desire to put the company out of business and send the industry a message. That's not what the civil court litigation system is for. But when utilized, it can really lead to these outside verdicts. Yeah, that's uh, the sending a message, making a statement phenomenon is uh, also very interesting to me. I, I've seen some studies. I'll get the numbers wrong, but I think I'm close here where there was there's been some research where the, the, you know, the mock trial with juries made up of multi-generational people and then juries made up of Gen Z only. And it was it, it both came to the same conclusion. But the, the damage assessment, I think the, the younger jury, it was either five or eight times more in terms of the damage assessed versus the jury made up of kind of a mixed group of, of, of age group, um, which can't be good uh, for anybody and, going forward. Yeah, and it's not sustainable. Society right. and companies, insurance, it's not sustainable, right? right? So, And that's where the effective advertising and utilization of social media is having an impact. I used to talk about it as it would normalize the M, right? They were trying to normalize the million. Now right. it's getting to the point where they're trying to normalize the B. B yeah, right? For right. million and jurors, you know, potential jurors and future jurors see this. And you see it in the papers and you see stories and they think, well, it's okay when they ask for 25 million or 50 million or 100 million because that's how these things work. And that just that, that can't and shouldn't be. But yeah. it is something we're seeing with younger juror demographics. Yeah. Well, that and now, you know, you also set up the, the snowball of, you know, insurers reacting in a, it, it, trying to get more rate, which leads to different complaints about the industry, right? And, you know, all of those things become a, a cycle that we have to unfortunately kind of navigate here. Um, that's that's for certain. So what, one of the things, the yeah, what, one of the things that I, I was particularly um, interested in in the discussion that I heard you talk about earlier this year was, you know, some, some ways that insurance insurers can kind of position themselves, fight back against this, you had you, you. I've heard a lot of people talk about the 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 problem. I've not heard a lot of people talk about what some potential, you know, practical kind of ways insurers can approach these issues are. So I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that for just a little bit. Yeah, sure. And I think it's really important. By the way, it's not easy. Um, the claims world is a difficult, challenging one right now. But I think we've all got to recognize, uh, to your point, that it's it's not going away. Social media isn't going away as, as much as I right. personally like it to, but it's not, uh, you know, changing juror demographics, litigation financing, corporate mistrust, uh, the sophistication and talent 
of plaintiff's counsel. All that is here to stay, so we've got to figure it out. And I actually heard, uh, I read a really good analogy that assured research made between social inflation and COVID. And it was something to the effect of the conditions that have led to social inflation are moving out of the pandemic stage and into an ongoing endemic phase. And I think that's right. And just like COVID, we've got to figure out how are we going to live with it? How are we going to attack it? And how are we going to protect ourselves? Right. So in terms of doing that, to your points earlier on third-party litigation financing, tort reform is an extremely effective solution um, and should be utilized. However, it's in slow and it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's slow. Today's politically charged uh, yeah. environment is as challenging as it's ever yeah. been. No, tell me about it. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it, and, and it changes, you know, one day you make progress and then day you give it back, you know. Exactly. And it's yeah. by its nature, it's jurisdictionally inconsistent. So even yeah. if you're successful, you, there's other places where, you know, you're not going to be. So right. I, I absolutely, I think it has to remain a priority. We all still work for it, push for it, but we can't just wait and rely on that, right? Yeah. We've got to yeah. do something now. So I think it breaks down into a few categories. One is talent. Um, internally, drawing talented folks to the insurance industry is still a challenge, but we've got to have talented claim handlers working these cases internally. Have to. Um, and it's also true externally. We've got to get the right counsel on the right cases. Right. And there's a cost associated with that, but it's critical because we can't be fighting an unfair fight. Right. It's uh -huh. uh, you can't bring a knife to the gunfight. Right. We've got to have our guns blazing. And what that leads to is you've got to. And this is getting harder and harder. I think internally in the claim world, we've got to work to identify the dangerous cases early. And that's getting harder, but we can't keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. Um, but it's getting much more challenging. It used to be more formulaic. Now it's a lot less predictable. Uh, there aren't conservative jurisdictions like there used to be, um, but we've got to work to identify the cases with the troubling ingredients, get the right resources on them. Where we can, try to resolve them early. That's also getting more challenging. It used to be that if you really wanted to settle a case, you could. There are cases now where there is no settlement because plaintiffs want, they are going to take it to trial. So when we run into those, there, I mean, We've got to aggressively and consistently combat the reptile theory and the trial taxes that have proved successful for plaintiff's counsel. Um, there's an old army expression that I, I was not in the army, full disclosure, but a good friend of mine who was for many, many years used to use all the, all the time. And I, I think it's just perfectly applicable. Sometimes you have to embrace the suck. And mm -hmm. that's the challenging part of the claim world. But we've got you got to kind of like it. You got to embrace it and you've got to fight the good fight in the world we're in. So we've got to work to make the cases about the facts themselves. That's critical. That starts at jury selections. And we've got to file motions and eliminate early in the case. And when we lose, we've got to aggressively appeal and hold the judges who aren't applying the law correctly accountable. We've got to use anchoring effectively to start to change the math um, a little bit in terms of what the juries are hearing. We've got to challenge those damage calculations at every step and invest there as well. Um, without violating antitrust rules, of course, we got to improve sharing on the defense side of the house. Plaintiff side share way better than we do, oh, yeah. Yeah. and that is making a difference, and we've got to get better. Because as an industry, um, and I know everybody knows this, but we're only as good as our weakest links, right? Because it's, the, it's those cases that grab the headlines and make the next hundred cases harder. So we just have to do better. Plaintiff's counsel came out of COVID swinging. And uh, they're, they're doing a good job, right? Um, you know, kind of all props to them. 
But right now, the game is shifting away from us, and we need to stop that cycle and really dig in and fight the fight. Yeah, that's really, really good. And I think it's something that a lot of insurers don't necessarily always think of in terms of their willingness to kind of fight the fight with all of the available kind of arrows in the quiver. Uh, and so that's that's a good message for people to hear. But I because the other side is certainly doing it. Uh, Absolutely. And and, and it's it's not it's not going to stop. Uh, and it's not something that's just going to all of a sudden go away. Yeah, NAMIC, we could we could run around the country and the Congress and you know try our best to get tort reform enacted. But I've been here 22 years and we're still at it. You know, well, it's, um, and, it's and, hard. And, and 25 years from now, somebody else will still be at it, <laughs> right? Um, you know, we, we'll make progress where we can and, you know, chip away and chip away at it. But it's a it's a tough it's a tough road that is not going to be the only answer here for certain. Listen, yeah, it's, good speaking, it's just not going to be the tied up in a bow. We're all done solution, right? Yeah, better. it's just it's just not. Yeah, I think you're right for sure. Well, listen, that's a great topic. I appreciate your interest in it and the work that we've done with Jin Ree on this one. It likely won't be the last conversation we have about it, uh, but I appreciate you joining us today and kind of talking through this with uh, with us uh, and, and maybe some folks have learned something here, but appreciate all the work you've done on this. Now, thank you very much. And you can you can tell it's not like I care about it or anything. Yeah, right. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for the opportunity and, and look forward to kind of working with everybody on this. And that's it for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. A special thank you and shout out to our sponsor, New England Asset Management. We'll be back again on May 18th with more insurance news, including an interview with economist Connor Lokar to discuss the impact of rising inflation on the national economy and, more importantly, on the property casualty insurance industry. Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.